it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Bruce News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry, and have a conversation with the people who make the industry just what it is, and see what we can learn from them. English beer writer Pete Brown probably needs no introduction to our listeners. Apart from having been a guest on the podcast a number of times, he is a multi-award winning beer writer, and his books would be very well known to anyone with an interest in beer. Earlier this year, Pete tweeted about the dire state of craft brewing in the UK and the number of breweries closing. With the pressures facing Australian brewers, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the challenges being faced there and see what was relevant in our own markets and what we could learn. Pete and I also talk about the evolution of the craft beer market and how he got to this point in the craft beer cycle. We also discuss at the very end his latest book, Clubland, looking at the intoxicating history of the working man's club in the UK. As always with Pete, it's a very thoughtful conversation about beer, and I hope you enjoy it. Pete Brown, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Hello, it's nice to be back. It's wonderful. It's far too long. We've had the, uh, the that, that great disconnect over the last couple of years. We did speak once or twice, but it's been a long time since you've been down here or I've managed to get up to uh, the UK. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've missed that. I was very lucky that just before lockdown hit, I got this really strange period of travel, which was never happened before and likely not to happen again. But I'd be in one amazing place and I'd get a phone call saying, do you want to come here? So I was... At like the end of 2019, I was in Melbourne for a while. Uh, I was in uh, South Africa. I was in California. And I'm just so grateful that that weird aberration happened just before we, we locked down. So, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, but, yeah, what nearly three and a half years now since I was over there. Actually, funnily enough, um, I, I think when you came out, you were, if not a guest of Stone and Woods, you certainly visited the Stone and Wood Brewery. And since then, we've seen... Them uh, taken off the uh, indie market? Yeah, that was actually the time before. That was 2016. I was... Uh, 2016? Oh, wow. That, that's okay. when I was brought out by Stone and Wood. Uh, and yeah, I spent some time at the brewery. We made a we made a beer uh, that we took up to Brisbane. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was a that well, was We a caught up and uh, spoke, we, we spoke there and we went on a bit of yeah. a tour of some You're of the Very kind of took me around some fantastic bars. It was amazing. Uh, that, that trip was magical. It really was. And, and so Melbourne was just uh, when you were here speaking at the BrewCon. That's right, yeah, yeah. So I hung out in Melbourne for five days, did the keynote. It went down okay. That's always the huge. Yeah, someone flies you all <laughs> halfway around the world. It's like, I, hope, I really hope they like this speech. <laughs> and they did. You um, spawned a lot of conversations and you subsequently followed up. It was almost the... Um, overview of the book that you came out with um, that we we spoke about. What is craft? So that was one of three, two or three uh, speeches I gave, presentations I gave based on that kind of thinking. And and as soon as lockdown hit, I thought I need to turn that into a book. And so it grew out of uh, the, the the talk I gave in in Melbourne and became my lockdown project. Thirty I said, can can I write and publish a book in thirteen weeks? And and we did. And and then it won some prizes. So I was totally vindicated. 
we might actually come back to that because it's always I, I don't know what it's like in the UK but certainly here there is a generational change that's gone on and there were oh yeah know, I guess people like us who used to debate endlessly I think it was even in the before Twitter days about what does craft mean and you just see the kids eyes glazing over these days just like you know talking about the old you know the the war if you're under 30 now these beers have always been there 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 is you you don't know what it was like to just walk into a pub and only see five global mainstream lagers you've grown up with ipa with sours all this kind of stuff and it's just it's just how things are so uh it is a, a very different perspective you know, it made me realise very much that the craft beer revolution that was the terms that used to be talked about, revolutions are always against something. Mm. Um, and in Australia, it was the monopoly of the big two where everything was lager and you couldn't get anything else. But I do wonder that as that's moved on, and I've, I've come to talk a little bit about the idea of what I call the post-craft world, that it was always against what went before. But I still don't know that beer has ever enunciated clearly what it is you know, in, in terms of the, the, the craft beer. We're, we're, we haven't moved into clearly enunciating exactly what it is. We always knew what it wasn't, and that's where things have become a little bit fractured for me. Yeah, totally, and that's what I realised in the book is that the way we were talking about craft beer, say four, five years ago, uh, had absolutely nothing to do with the meaning of the word craft. Um, so everyone carries around this set of warm, fuzzy associations. It's a great word because everyone has this idea in their head of what, what craft is, and those associations are almost always positive. Um, but we were we were in this kind of uh, um, cross purposes with the consumer, I think, uh, in that consumer ideas of craft were this warm, fuzzy. Yeah, it's this guy with his shirt sleeves rolled up stirring a wooden paddle in in some old uh thing and there's there's hay and there's i don't know why there's hay but there's hay round on the floors and <laughs> and the steam coming up and and it's and it's all this lovely kind of pre-industrial and and craft beer was never that um it, it you know uh most of the principles of the word craft go out the window as soon as you walk into a craft brewery um and by na- by 2019 we were talking about independence um, the Australian Craft Beer Association here in the UK, in America, independence became the only meaningful uh, term, and and that was very. I, I'm not against that at all, but that was a very industry centric point of view, and you know, there's a there's a chunk of people drinking craft beer, and the desire for them to drink beer brewed by an independent, small independent brewer is why they drink it, but but that certainly doesn't apply to everyone who drinks craft beer now. Um, you know, if if that is your motivation, that's great. But if if that's not your motivation, then you know, say you're all you're also drinking Stella Artois and or VB, um, you haven't got a problem drinking beer made by big multinationals. So you're drinking craft beer just because you want something a bit hoppier or or, or something like that. And it's also mainstreamed, as as you said. Anyone under thirty, um, you know, in Australia, we've got uh, little creatures that I'm sure you would uh, remember. So it launched in 2000 and so that's where i really set the yeah bcad line and one uh, of my seminal beers yeah just wonderful so anyone who is of legal drinking age these days was born in a world in which little creatures existed um and you know increasingly with stone and wood is uh you know 15 years old this year i think so you know rapidly coming up and you know, we were debating, you know, what was craft and, you know, things 
back then. And to, to anyone that's drinking beer now, they've never known a time when those beers weren't available on tap. And to them, it, it, it really is. Um, you know, gee, I wish granddad would shut up about the war. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think so. It's like, let's just beer, just drink it. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and have you, so I, I, I should preface this by saying I really wanted to talk about a post that you posted um, a couple of weeks ago about how tough it is for craft breweries and you're seeing a high rate of closing. Yeah. And I wanted to get some of the, 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 the thoughts about that and uh, some of the things you said about that. But I guess before we do, where is beer? Um at the moment, what are the brands that are growing? What is you know what are the what what are the styles that are really big in in the UK these days? So we, we we've we've got stuck in um, in hazy IPA pale ale territory, and that is craft beer. It is craft beer because it is hazy and pale, and that's that's what craft beer is. Um, and there's an incredible lack of imagination at the moment, a, a lack of progress, a lack of dynamism. Um, and it's like I, I don't mind the existence of hazy pale beers, but for me, craft was about this wonderful choice of styles, um, and that's gone in in most places. Um, there are this time last year we had a dark mild revival, um, which I think was you know okay let's pick the let's pick the beer style that's least likely to be cool, and uh, let's make it cool. And it was really interesting because it, it, it was everywhere. And then it got to about May and people started posting on social media, uh, is it okay to stop pretending we're like Dark Mild yet? <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it is that kind of very fashion image-led side of the market uh, mm. that uh, that dominates. And you talk to brewers and they say, we brew we brew hazy pale ales because that's what the market wants and that's what the consumer wants. And I say I respond by saying, yeah, that's how Heineken make their decisions as well. So you know, but th- there's not as much of that bold, brilliant innovation experimentation as as we used to have because brewers are struggling and they need to keep the lights on, and so they brew what sells, which is business after all. You know, it's, they are it, in business. But, uh, <laughs> but that's where it is fascinating and I, I, I've heard other people draw a very similar analysis you know once upon a time we rebelled against everything being a pale lager and, and yet the people who did that are now all brewing the, the, the same monoculture for, for, for want of a better word and, in, and as soon as somebody comes up with a great idea that starts to get some traction everyone else will everyone jumps on follow it. that as well yeah, yeah. Yeah, everyone's kind of. Will, will someone please find us the next big cool thing so we can all follow it? <laughs> you know, I, I always look for meaning or truth, or you know, try and make sense of things. Is there anything wrong with that? I, I guess at the end of the day, um, I th- well, this comes on to this brings us to the next point, isn't it? Which is that um, if all you're going to do is brew hazy pale ales, you don't mm. need two thousand different brewers to do that. And and this is the this is the issue now. So last year we had eighty breweries close, uh, as opposed to about forty new ones opening. So that's the first decline in the number of breweries in the UK. I think probably I might be wrong, barring the odd blip. But for twenty years, that's the first time it's you know it's kind of peaked and seems to be going down. And and I got I got invited by the Sunday Times to write this is craft beer over piece. 
Uh, and if you, if you, if is the craft beer boom over? And if you Google that phrase, people have been trying to write that piece since 2018. Uh, and I've seen ludicrous uh, stories from two or three years ago uh, where the subhead is something like, with only 200 new breweries opening last year, is the craft beer boom finally over? And it's like, what, you're saying 200 new breweries opening is a sign of decline? That And that just shows you how brilliant the UK is at doing itself down, beating itself up, looking for the misery wherever they can find it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think you're alone there because, again, it's always that, – that, that's one of, the, one of the things. It's still one of the stats that I always have to remind myself – of and it may have been Bart Watson from the Brewers Association, but it was certainly uh, a, a, an economist pointing out that one in four businesses fail in the first three years. Yeah, craft brewing is still outperforming general business startups. Um, yes, yeah, 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 in, in, absolutely. In, in, in that sense, uh, because most of them are still around. But then I also balance that by my fear is the metric that quite often I hear quoted in the industry because it's an industry that's very hard to get meaningful stats in. They show the health of the industry is the number of breweries that's opening. Yeah. Which to me is a bit of a false... You know, just because breweries are opening, it, surely it's beer consumption or profit or there are other yeah. metrics that are actually more meaningful um, than just that one. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, we, we've got we've got a, a number here for... for breweries the number of breweries that are opening is quite a different number than the number of breweries that are actually brewing beer at the moment so you get these kind of people kind of starting up but not actually brewing yet um but i, I took this i took this brief from the sunday times and i wanted to go out and go uh yet again uh we have kind of you know doom mongers saying the craft beer boom is over uh here's why it's not and then I went into the market, spoke to brewers, spoke to retailers, and every single person I spoke to said, yep, the boom is over. The boom is over. Craft beer's not over, but the boom years are definitely over. Uh, and I didn't find a single person who told me anything different. So I had to kind of reluctantly go, yep, <laughs> uh, the boom's definitely over. I, I, I love it. It's always attributed to Mark Twain, who you know couldn't possibly have said all the things he's been attributed yes. with but it was uh yeah history doesn't repeat but it rhymes yeah, um, yeah. and one of one of the rhymes uh, or one of the sort of uh, analogies i often draw is um you know it, it, there is a little bit of a gold rush mentality whenever anything is attractive popular and everyone races off to the gold field and you only ever hear the people that strike the nugget you often yeah. don't hear the people that sort of uh, end up hocking their uh, pans and their clothes and their dog just to you know, get the stagecoach home. Absolutely. And sometimes that's the you know the, the hype coverage of the of the brewing industry fits within that category because we are still seeing people entering the industry with that same you know eager anticipation for a fun novel industry that probably existed a decade ago and I don't and I think it's a little bit more ruthless or a little bit harder now. Yeah, uh, I mean there's a lot more competition. Beer beer overall beer volumes are declining. Uh and they they always have been more or less and for 25 years. And and all the all the people that are going into the market are competing for the same small segment uh of that, you know, yes yes to take in some uh share away from the from the big guys, but but they're mainly competing for the same spots on the shelf or uh, on the bar, uh, and that competition is intensifying. And a lot of the people who are going into it 
I think the most revealing thing I realise is that in in any startup in any industry, uh, you if, if you if it's your if it's if it's you that's mortgaging your house to, to to raise the money or or it's your dream that you've been sitting on for years, you work every hour you can stand. You know, you 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 work the weekends. You uh, in in brewing, you you're in it six to to mash in and then you're working and then you're doing the paperwork in the afternoon and then you go to a meet the brewer event in the evening uh and then you're up doing it again the next day seven days a week and i spoke to a few brewers who just realized they couldn't carry on at that pace um and if they couldn't carry on at that pace they didn't have a business uh i spoke to one guy who was ill yeah he took eight weeks out of his business and when he came back to it it was just ruins there was there was no way he could get the, the the business back on its feet after being away from it for eight weeks, and and so it was just so highly geared in terms of time and effort. And I think a lot of brewers are still in that space, and a lot of them are kind of young guys, and they've got that energy. Um, but you know that's the only thing keeping a lot of them going. I think because on business on on paper, they're they're not a lot of them are not are not, are not viable businesses. I don't know what the British equivalent of this would be, but in, in Australia we have news agencies, and once upon a time they were, you know, they sold the newspapers, the casket, the gift cards, and those sorts of things. It was a nice little. It was a business that you know, if if you ran it really well and you were popular with your your, your locals and you you did some sort of things, you might maybe grow the revenue by ten percent, and if you're grumpy, you maybe lose fifteen percent. But you know, there was a certain it it wasn't an expansion business but they, they were very attractive with people who maybe took a you know redundancy mm. um, and wanted to buy themselves a job and it was the sort of thing you could buy yourself an income um, that was r- fairly constant um, so you know, until newspapers died um, yeah. lotto tickets came uh, instead and you could make yourself you know a, a reasonable income for the amount of work that was involved so long as you're prepared to sit there and sell papers and and, and raffle tickets and you know if if you wanted to have a weekend off you had to pay someone from the local school to run it for you and trust them to do it Um, but it was costing you money um, that was yours but at the end once you'd bought yourself an income for five six ten years you could then sell it for probably about the same that you bought it for because it's someone else buying an income and you know, for, for a while now, I thought that's actually, for a lot of these small breweries, that's actually probably the best that they can hope for is doing something that they love and buying themselves an income. Yeah. But as you say, so long as you don't get sick, so long as you don't, you know, uh, get exhausted um, and, 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 you, and you need to manage that, the difference is they're a very capital intensive business to start in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And the, cap- the capital costs are, are hitting people that's a major factor so um yeah if you have soaring energy prices and you have soaring grain prices you know think about malting you've got grain and you've got energy (laughs) they're the the two big inputs uh you've got grain that you're heating uh in in large quantities over long periods of time uh and so the price of malt is just going through the roof and then you think about how much heat it takes to to fire up a, a, a copper uh, a mash ton and the energy costs are just abs- astronomical i mean as a household uh, we've not been able to afford to heat our house this this winter um because our energy bills are just i mean at one point it was going to be six thousand pounds for the year uh which is a significant chunk of my income uh just to keep the heating on what one in four households in the uk are not heating their can't afford to heat their homes in the middle of winter and um 
you think about how much more energy uh, and also household heating prices are capped business uh, business energy prices are not capped so you think about the energy of that big burn under the mash tun uh, and it's under the copper uh, and there's no cap on that and and so it's just uh, it's just huge and and because consumers are facing a cost of living crisis you simply cannot pass on all your cost increases to the consumer you know, the, the fraction that they are passing on means that the price of a pint is becoming unaffordable for a lot of people. So it's a real double bind that a lot of brewers uh, find themselves in. I don't think our energy costs are quite as extreme as the UK, but we have very similar cost you know, input pressures. And then the, the government, um, through Genius about 20 years ago, decided to index um, excise. So the excise that's levied on beer and it goes up indexed to the cost of inflation and you know for, for the 20 years that inflation was like one percent it was a minor irritation but suddenly when all of your inputs are going up we've got inflation of seven eight percent suddenly they're also having record excise charged which brewers collect from the consumer they don't necessarily pay but again same thing it makes a um, a point when house price when all of the house basket of goods is going up by that seven eight percent and beer goes up um, as well, it makes it much less attractive. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then it, it does. So, so, so the market is suffering. And basically, if if you have cash reserves, you're going to get through it. If you don't have cash reserves, you you you're going to struggle. And uh, people are saying that if you can make it to maybe September this year, um, you know, inflation is already just starting to come down. Um, the, the things, you know, recessions always end. That that is you know just a, an incontrovertible fact. So it's just if you've got the reserves and you can ride this out, then then you know we'll we'll see what happens then. But you know it's it's the big guys who've got those reserves and the small guys who don't. And and the other dynamic we're seeing is uh, you know Heineken bought Beavertown uh, in 2018. Uh, they completed that purchase uh, just late last year, and Beavertown um, Neck Oil, which is a four four point one percent session IPA has grown, is seeing 480% year-on-year growth in volume. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, got the, it's got the muscle of the Heineken distribution system behind it. The great thing about that is it shows that there is an appetite among the public for uh, hoppy pale ale, uh, more interesting beer than you know mainstream lager. There's an insatiable appetite for that. People want it. As soon as it's going on the shelves, it's disappearing. So that's good news. But but the way that some of these brands uh, are working is, you know, there's kind of one craft tap on the bar, uh, and Heineken will go in and they'll go, okay, we'll give you this beautiful, flashing uh, Beavertown font. Uh, we'll do all the cellar work for you, all the lines, all the cooling. Uh, you just have to sign here saying that Beavertown beers are the only beers that go through this tap. And, and that was the one guest tap in that pub. And so small independent brewers go in, and it's like, sorry, mate, you know, we've got Beaver Town now. Uh, and so I'm starting to think that, because I, I, was, I was going through, for a project I was doing, I was going through all the annual reports of the big brewers uh, a couple of weeks ago. And all the people, you know, Anheuser-Busch uh, and, and Heineken, all the people that have acquired craft brands in the last few years, those craft brands are barely mentioned in their annual reports. You know, they're, they're talking about their core brands 
um, they, they want to push their core lager brands. And they're all talking about premiumization. And when they talk about premiumization, they don't mention their craft brands. And so all these brands that they've spent tens of millions of pounds acquiring are not central to their business strategy going forward. They've bought them to block craft brewers out of the market. They've bought them to take that one tap on, to, to, to pay that guy to not put craft beer on the bar. Um, and and, and I, I'm starting to think now that that's that, that was the plan all along. We buy Beaver Town, we buy Goose Island, we buy Camden Town, uh, we, we block craft beer and we, we suffocate it. Um, but those are not brands that we see as part of our main strategy going forward. That's I mean that's a really interesting discussion to have because uh, again every jurisdiction has different regulatory frameworks and in, in Australia it tends to be a contract of eighty percent or ninety percent with one of the two major breweries and then there are a couple of independent taps. We saw you know five six seven years ago as craft beer became more popular publicans wanting to take a smaller and smaller because the, the, the big brewers were so slow to getting into the craft and catching on they saw it as a fad or they didn't see it as a volume play and so contracts started reducing um, rather than 80 percent maybe the publican wanted 50 percent they would take a smaller rebate but it gave them what consumers actually wanted and you know they, they wanted craft and the big brewers responded by buying, um, you know, the Stone and Woods, the Bolters, the uh, Four Pines, and putting those on. And I didn't, see, I don't see that as a way to kill craft or even directly targeting small brewers. They're almost the collateral damage. The big brewers saw it as they wanted to protect the, their mainstream taps that were likely to go to the other brewer if the other brewer had a better selection of the craft beer. And we, and we saw a lot of that. Um, the, the, the narrative for small brewers has always been the big guys are gunning for us. Where I always saw is more of like that, well, it, that, that's a strategy. That's what consumers want. We need to be in there to some extent because we'll always sell more Heineken, you know, uh, I, I don't know what yeah. the British equivalents are, but, you know, Heineken. We'll, if, <laughs> if, if, if CUB has Prony, VB, um, Pure Blonde, and um, we will sell a lot more volume through those taps, but we'll only have those taps if we can give them um, Pirate Life, Volta, yeah. and yeah. Four Pines. There's definitely some of that as well, yeah, yeah. Uh, we really want Beavertown, okay, but you got to take Heineken. I don't know if that's happening, but I've I've known that it, similar things happened in the in the past. It's the same, similar, slightly different markets because of your tied house houses and the, the the way the pubcos work over there, but very very similar. And we are increasingly, I think, going to the more pubco related, where there are mm. big corporate um, venues owning lots and lots of pubs. That we will start to see a little bit of that. Yeah, go on. And it's that tricky thing because I, I someone showed me. Uh, you do hear it from the industry. You do hear it. Oh, we're being shut out. You know, the consumers being forced to kind of just drink big brands. And someone showed me the list of that one of the big pub co's had that it allowed its pubs to choose from. And I could have quite happily, you know, drunk in that pub. You know, there were there were mm. some great beers on there. Uh, there was there was nothing that I thought that was that was lacking. But from an industry point, if you're not on that list. Tough shit, you know. It's uh, it's it's bad from bad from the diversity point of view in terms of uh, all these brewers out there who are who are not looking enough to get on. And the problem is that when the when the free taps that are left after all that, uh, the small brewers compete on price to to get onto those taps. 
Um, so they're not making any money off it. Um, the publican's grateful for the price cut because the publican might be making money off that tap, but they're losing hand over fist overall. We've got, uh, I think, 18 pubs a week closing in the UK at the moment. Um, so, of course, they're going to compete on price for that tap. Um, uh, but it, it just it's just not a long-term strategy for survival. What are the options? Because, again, for the, the big brewers taking those easy independent taps is business for them. You know, they're, they're not in it to, to be charitable or leave yeah. stones unturned. Exactly. I think there's a couple of things that brewers really, and a lot of them are, otherwise I wouldn't have noticed it. I've not come up with this. But uh, I think now, I think we all know that if you're starting a craft brewery in the 2020s, you, you need a tap room, you need a brewery tap. Um, and, and that gives you, the if your beer's any good, that gives you the volume to tick over. And then anything else that you sell is is a bonus, uh, yeah. and we, we saw that in America maybe five or six years ago, and that's definitely now the case in the UK. Um, I think the other exciting thing, if you talk, if you look at industry analysts, is everyone's talking about e-commerce uh, and selling direct to the consumer at home. So I think what COVID did in the UK, we've had a long-term drift from the on-trade to off-trade over the last 40 years. And I think COVID probably accelerated um, uh, a decade's worth of that drift, uh, concentrated into three years. So sure, we're now going back out to the pub uh, again, but not to the same extent that we were pre-COVID. And so e-commerce presents this kind of playing field where you can go in and sell direct to the consumer at home. Um, And I saw some stats the other day that basically said that's the that is the that is the big growth channel in the global beer market now, mm. and and that benefit that benefits smaller brewers because you know I can go to the supermarket and get twenty four cans of Heineken for less than a quid a can. Um, you know if I, if I, if I've got some if I've got at my fingertips, uh, you know the opportunity to buy an interesting mixed case of beers that I've not tried before uh, that's going to get delivered to my door tomorrow, then then that's really exciting. Is there that same excitement? around beer that we once felt because uh, again speak just speaking from the experience that i observed i used to drive well i actually but before there were any craft breweries in my area or even good bottle shops i would drive two hours to a little bottle shop in toowoomba just to get because i heard that they had sierra nevada in you know oxidized badly traveled sierra nevada in (laughs) yes because there were you know and that's what you do but then as the beer world has grown my willingness to inconvenience myself to get it has shrunk. So my local and at the same time, my local bottle shop has a phenomenal range of local craft beers. Um, so now that it's easily available, I look in and go, oh, gee, that's a lot for a four pack. Yes. Um, um, how do we lock in the passion to make people inconvenience themselves if they need to, or just pay that premium? for something that, as you've said, do the big brewers make equally as good beer these days when they mm. want to? It's a funny one. It's a tricky one. Uh, and uh, I, I just don't want to sound like a... I'll be conscious that this chat might just sound like I'm preaching doom at all <laughs> in all directions. Um, but but this idea of premiumization is, is a constant. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work on that this month for an investment bank that wanted me to talk to them about premiumization in beer. Um, and... 
you keep seeing articles on premiumization as if it's a new thing. Oh, millennials want premium goods. And it's like, yeah, everyone always has. You know, it's been a constant. Uh, what What is considered premium changes, and that's, that's the really interesting part. Um, and you look at the history of the British beer market, you know, once upon a time, fake European lager was premium because it was premium to, to ale. Uh, once upon a time, absolute vodka was premium. And now it's kind of a standard house pour. Um, and and so what is premium changes? And currently, craft beer still very, very much up there in terms of people's premium perception. They're prepared to pay more for it. They're prepared to seek out uh, interesting new things. But even more premium than that is Mediterranean lager. <laughs> so somehow the big guys have managed to make, you know, bog-standard lagers brewed in Burton-on-Trent, but badged as if it comes from Madrid or Barcelona. That is now more premium than craft beer. We've seen something similar here where, you know, VB started to decline and so they released a beer that was even crisper, but it comes from the same brewery, same production process, you know, the same high-gravity brewing. There's nothing premium about it, but it's uh, regarded as contemporary. So whereas the VB is now yeah. a traditional mainstream, suddenly you've got a beer that's lighter in flavour, but in a flint bottle and a tall neck is contemporary, but it's seen as more premium than, than the older brands. And uh, But I, I used to love your articles with the work that you used to do on it about the reassuringly expensive yes. um, of... Uh, Stella Artois. Stella Artois. Um, and your, your analysis of how that campaign locked in that value. Yeah, yeah. It's um, Whenever you do a campaign like that, it's kind of 50% uh, brilliant strategy, uh, which is what I did, uh, and brilliant creative work. <laughs> um, and it's 50% luck. Uh, so, so the so, so the most successful beer launch in UK history uh, is this beer called Madri, which appeared towards the end of lockdown. According to sources, it is Coors Light with the added, added hop extract, um, but it pretends it's from Madrid, um, <laughs> and and they did this thing. Uh, where they launched post lockdown, and I think they did. I think they did a great job branding it. I think they did a great job. The the the, the beer's pretty good. I could drink it without spitting it out. Uh, and they did a great job in terms of aggressively selling it in, giving away free kegs, attractive branded glasses, all that kind of stuff. They also launched just at the time when people were able to go to the pub again, but were not able to get on a plane for a weekend break in Spain. And so you walk into a pub, you see this beer, it's, oh, it's the, it's the spirit of Madrid. And you're like, oh, God, do you remember when we used to go to Madrid? Oh, wasn't it great? Oh, Spain. I really want to go to Spain again. Oh, we can't get a flight. Oh, I'll, I'll just have this beer instead because it makes me, oh, you can almost taste the tapas, can't you? And it's, um, and, 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 and they were very, very lucky that they caught that particular moment as well. Uh, and that's what we did with Stella. You know, we we caught this aspiration. Uh, we also just flagrantly ripped off uh, the, the Jean de Florette movies. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but but we just caught that sense in the market that um, this idea of everyday premium. Um, yeah, be- before Stella, uh, you premium lager was something that came in a bottle with a logo on it, and you drank it straight from the bottleneck so everyone could see what you were drinking. And Stella Arthur was like, well, it's premium, but you drink it out of a pint like a normal beer. Uh, and you pay more for it because it's special. 
uh, and it comes from France. It doesn't come from France, but uh, you know, it's uh, it, that, that's what people felt. It's and, it, and and partly it's that weird, weird British thing. Part part of it is a global rule in beer that any imported beer is premium to any domestic beer. Yep. I yep. S- never have understood that, but it's it remains an absolute truth in the industry, whatever country you go to. Um, so Budweiser is not premium in the United States; it's premium everywhere else. Um, so, but partly it's that, but partly in Britain, it's this thing of like, well, if it comes from somewhere else, it must be better than something made here. <laughs> so you know, one of the world's top four brewing nations. Uh, regards its own brewing heritage as just a pile of crap. Uh, and if a beer comes from Italy or Spain, which have no brewing uh, heritage, then it's better than a beer that's brewed here. Just nonsense. <laughs> I once heard beer described as fractally interesting. The more that you dig into it, you know, the, the more patterns repeat. That's good. That's good. Because you talk about that, and but we're all susceptible to, to that. And even craft beer drinkers, you know, we convinced ourselves that craft beer was better for a whole range of reasons. And, you know, particular beers were better because it's the way that we feel. I, I often say that we give as much to anything that we enjoy as it gives to us. Absolutely, in, yeah. In terms of that. And, in fact, you've done so many um, wonderful tastings I've never been able to go to where you do uh, beer and music yes. pairings. And, uh, you know, there's all of those things that rely on our perceptions absolutely changing our enjoyment and how we feel about where something comes from even if it doesn't it just needs to be it just needs to fool us enough to convince ourselves yes yes and you do buy into it you buy into it willingly i think uh sometimes it's like i keep thinking about when i was a kid and i'd see kind of favorite cartoon characters and i and i knew they weren't real because they were cartoons and i understood the difference between real people and cartoons but at the same time, I chose to believe that they were real. And in a kid's mind, you can quite happily entertain those two conflicting points of view at the same time because you've got this flexibility of imagination. And I think I think we do do that. I think we do that with, with choices of brands that we that we buy. There's a little bit of make-believe. Um, you know, if I, if I buy this this particular brand, I am sexier than if I don't. Yeah. And any any kind of rational analysis will show that it's not true. But but it doesn't matter because it's true in your head. And and we haven't studied it too much in beer, but one and our regular listeners will have heard me quote this before. Those the, the wine industry studies where they'll blind give you wine with the electroencephalograph where they measure the, the pleasure firing in, in your head and they'll say, oh, this is a $10 bottle of wine yeah. and you'll experience, and then this is a $70 and you'll physically experience more pleasure when they've yeah. given you the same wine and just told you. It, it, so it's a real thing. So it's not just, we're not just kidding ourselves at a mental level, we're considering ourselves as an experiential level as well. Fundamentally, yeah. So, so my, my beer and music stuff that I do, uh, I, I always say that I, I can change the flavour of beer by changing the music that I play with it. And of course I don't change the flavour of beer, but but everyone thinks that I do. Uh, yeah, it's a magic trick. Um, it's <laughs> it's the, this, this beer doesn't taste very nice when you play it with um, Debussy's Claire de Lune, but it tastes awesome when you play it with Jimi Hendrix doing All Along the Watchtower. How, how does that it's, work? Well... Uh, it's the evil genius that is marketing and advertising. Because if you can, if if you can do it, and uh, you know, I, I still think that the um, from where you'd rather be tagline for um, Corona is one of those ones because it becomes. I haven't the seen that. That's a great. Tagline. Oh, haven't you? No. 
maybe it's just here. Um, yeah, it's it's because it's always palm trees and hammocks, yeah. and you know, a leg hanging off the edge of the hammock, and the setting sun over the water. That's great. Not saying it's Mexico, but from where you'd rather be. And then Great Northern, which is the biggest brand in Australia at the moment, stole that a little bit by calling it the beer from up here. And it was loosely based on the Cairns brewery that they bought and closed. And they alluded to... The, the, the brand but it was you know from where you'd rather you know, so the beer from up here never actually saying where up here was so yeah up here could be wherever you're outdoors and uh and and, and it's a blank sheet that you project your your aspirations onto yeah yeah definitely and just on an everyday basis when it can fulfill those aspirations and i think corona is a fascinating one uh because if you were to and i've done this with agency advertising agencies if you're to pop corona into a tulip shaped glass and do a proper sensory evaluation on it it's undrinkable i mean it's awful <laughs> it's really bad you know it's skunked it's sunstroke because it's in clear bottles um but it's regarded as one of the if not the world's leading premium brands because that imagery side is so strong um you know that the marketing behind it is so aspirational and it speaks to everybody I mean, who wouldn't, you know, if you see those billboards on your way home from work on a drizzly evening, who wouldn't rather be on that hammock? You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great piece of marketing. And, and it, my, my thing is, I, 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 I always try to criticise, but also go, well, they're doing something very right. So what, what could craft brewers or smaller brewers learn from what, it's, it's very easy to slag off Madri for being a completely fake, you know, for, for being, Cause light with added hop extract, but but they're doing something that craft beer brewers aren't doing. They're they're touching a chord with people that craft beers are not doing. So what are they doing that's right? And you know we might not have the huge multi million pound budgets that they have, but what are they what are they tapping into? And and could could smaller brewers learn something from that? I used to get angry, like in my early fiery writing days, used to get angry about those sorts of things because you, it's a fraud being perpetuated on the consumer, but it's a yes. fraud that we willingly partake in, yes. as I've realised. But then I became a lot less angry about it when I realised when I would hear beer nerds, you know, craft beer aficionados, people who are very passionate, had very strong views, dismissing a, a multi-quality award-winning you know, champion award-winning, medal-winning beer, um, saying, oh, it's crap, they don't know how to make beer. And, you, and you're sort of going, what basis have you got? You, you've bought into another brand that resonates with you and makes that beer taste better, but you're dismissing a beer that is highly credentialed, beautifully made, that you just don't like. And it's fundamentally the same thing to, to my, my I, th- I think my example of that is, you know, over the last few years, uh, Brewdog have had their comeuppance they've been they were absolutely the center of the whole beer me too thing in 21 uh the behavior of people within that company they've been accused of all sorts of you know toxic workplace culture bullying and and worse and and you know those are very serious allegations and i don't buy a brew dog anymore and and so on but it's when you hear people go well their beers were always shit anyway it's like (laughs) no they weren't just grow up. If their beers were always shit anyway, they wouldn't be in the position they are now. I remember you in 2009 going crazy for this Brewdog beer, because we all did, and you did. So don't turn around to me now and say that their beers have always been shit. Have some kind of critical faculty in your head. You know, they still make great beers. 
they're just a company that has a lot of question marks over their ethical practices. Um, and you know, and then just just this week they released uh, they released the results of a staff survey uh, about their you know that consultants in to try and improve their workplace practices. And people have dismissed that as bullshit. And it's like, but if you were Brewdog in this situation with these accusations, you would try to improve it. <laughs> so yeah, not to defend them and the practice that they used to do, but if you get called out for it and you try and do something about it, you kind of have to give credit where it's due. I mean, I don't know. It, it might be bullshit. I don't know. But just to kind of dismiss things like that just because you don't like them. Yeah, we, we, it's, it's, all, it's all the same thing, isn't it? It's a very emotive reaction. Uh, not always not always rational to the front. Yeah. I, 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 listeners will be sitting here waiting you know, for, for, for me to take the bait on BrewDog. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never criticise the quality of their beer. They are absolutely committed to making good beer and uh, and doing it well. So uh, my criticism tends to be the brewery that said they'd never advertise suddenly coming up with yeah, advertising. all that. And, yeah. uh, like the World Cup, you know, um, we're yeah. not going to participate in the World Cup, but drink our beer while you're protesting yeah. the World Cup being... You know, oh, and, of- and we're showing it in all our bars. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah all, all, all of that, that's what I have problems with. But yeah, again, totally, totally. I, I, I think that, you know, I don't not drink the beer because I don't like the beer. I don't choose not to drink the beer because I would much rather vote for breweries who yeah. I do support um, Completely, for the yeah. positive things that they make. So, uh, which hopefully isn't too hypocritical. Um, no, no. It's just, <laughs> you know, I, 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 think, I think we both have a thing where, you know, there's a, we, we were talking before about the, the, the I was I was going to say golden age of beer blogging, but certainly an, <laughs> certainly an age of beer blogging, you know, in the in the noughties and stuff. Um, and there are a lot of people who write about beer because they're passionate and and they they write what they believe. They champion beers that they love drinking, and and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I I, I want that in the scene. I want passionate advocates blogging subjectively uh, about what they love and what they hate. But I think both you and I have tried to have a more uh, impartial view. I think when you get to a certain position of influence, you want to kind of, you don't have to, but I think we kind of both want to say, well, well, this is how it is. This is this is a more kind of rational, measured take on what's happening. Uh, and so yes, yeah. you, yes, you can be critical, but, but you also have to kind of... Um, Take things for what they are. So, like, like I was saying about what are the big brands doing right. Don't like them, but learn from what they're doing right, and then maybe use it against them. Yeah, yeah, I, I can. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think you know I've grown up in some ways and sort of understood that the world. For for me, a big eye opener was a lot of the practices I used to rail against the big brewers, and the small brewers have said we're against that until they got to the size that they could do yeah. the same thing. Um, yeah. and you know, and and that was craft, for example. You know, the, the the small brewers were against using enzymes until suddenly enzymes were okay. They were against technology until they could yes. afford technology. Um, I don't know what it's like in, but one of the things I see here is there are a lot of brewers who still are anti-pasteurizing, saying it ruins your beer and it's not craft. Pasteurizers just happen to be an expensive piece of kit. Yes, <laughs> that, yeah. that takes a lot of footprint, and it's kind of like we're against pasteurization until we're not. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and that. But then a whole lot of in, in um, you know trade practices that we see as well. You know, the, the, the contracts. A lot of craft breweries that were once against contracts. Once they got the size that they could incentivize venues to put them on over somebody else. Yeah. 
they started doing it. There's that sense of craft beer being handmade, and and people saying that their beers are handmade and so on. And then you go. I did a brewery tour last the week before last, <laughs> and it's like, uh, well, the the computer starts the mash at four a.m. and then I turn, <laughs> yeah. then I then I turn up at like eight, and just as just in time for the hopping. And it's like, well, is this craft beer? Um, you know, uh, anyway, that's that's another mouse hole not to go down. But but this is the fascinating maturing that the industry's had because that was part of consistency. And, you know, if you want to reach a broader market, you have to make the same good beer the same way every time. And, again, that was one of the things I realised that, you know, standing there with a mash paddle and testing the temperature by thumb um, and, and all of those things isn't a way to consistently – it's artisanal and it's small if you just want to have a very small little following. But you're never going to reach a broader market with that level of variability about it. And it's no. still good beer and it's still craft in my book. Yeah, except when it's not good beer. And, you know, a few times I've had people, you know, there I am paying – six seven pounds a pint with a, and the brewer's like yeah yeah we're not happy with that yet we're still working on it it's like well why the fuck have i just spent seven quid a pint? <laughs> why, why are you releasing beers that you're not happy with because we can't afford to pour them away oh, oh well, that, that's one thing but uh it, it, it's another one that um at risk of going down another rabbit hole because i do want to talk about your book um and i i i i, I, I want to let you let you get away i could talk for hours but that variability in beer and, you know, it, it, it is one of the things that fascinates me that, and I fell into it saying that beer is the new wine and that why doesn't beer have the um, respect that wine has and the command the price that it has. And, you know, I reflect on this a lot. So I'd love your thoughts about it because I think you make wine once a year. You've, mm. you've got your harvest and it's the winemaker's job to curate that grape into the best liquid that he can make. But once he's done that you know, he's, his job is then to sell it. And if you win a gold medal for that wine, you can command a high price because there was only that one vintage of that wine. Whereas brewers yeah. can go in and make a pale ale today, tomorrow, they'll tweak the recipe a little bit based on yesterday's, so tweak it tomorrow, you know, maybe they'll sort of see how it goes and they're, they're constantly tweaking and, but it's something that they can make every every, every day. So it's a, it's, it's a miracle of, you know, so many things. Mm. But it's a very different product from, from from wine, not qualitatively, not yeah, you know, so not values, but just very, very different. And there are people who say that variability is a is a hallmark of authentic craft. And when I when I wrote my book on uh, craft and argument, I I used an example of sort of hand blown wine glasses. Um, you know these 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 kind of they were very big here in the in the nineties, where you kind of green recycled glass, and you can see tiny you can see tiny bubbles in the glass. It's quite thick glass, and there's tiny air bubbles all around, uh, and they look great. They look they look handmade, and and the, my my point is that if you buy a set of six of those glasses, every single one is different from the other in terms of the the way the bubbles are. Uh, the, the 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 dispersion of them, the look of them, each one's unique, like a snowflake. But they all work as wine glasses. Mm. None of them leak. Yes. None of them leak. None of them fall over when you stand them on the table. <laughs> they're all of a roughly similar. You, you can see that they're all part of a set. And, and and that for me is the difference between you know variations in character and variations in quality. Variations in character are to be welcomed. But a beer, we go, yeah, we're just not happy with this one. Then. Yeah, I've, I've I've bought this wine glass. Yeah, it kind of leaks and it falls over when I put it down on the table. I'm still working on it, but I'm going to charge you ten quid for it. 
But the th- and, and the other thing about that is if you're buying it, you're buying it for that variability because yeah. hand-blown wine glasses, you can't scale. You've only got one set of lips. There's <laughs> actually, um, you know, there, there's actually a physical limit to how many you can make in a day. So if you want to make an income out of it, you can't scale, so you need to command a higher price. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And convince people that that's the thing. And, and that's where, you know, the, the idea of craft beer, I think your argument was that if you want to be craft, you need to be really small and be all of those things, but you need to be able to command the price for it. And that's the massive paradox of craft as a concept, is that by definition is it, it is elitist. Mass-produced, standardised stuff will always be cheaper and more affordable than something craft-produced. And, you know, there's a barrier to entry to, to any craft market. Uh, I worked out that you could buy an IKEA chair um, with after working for two hours on minimum wage behind a bar, um, whereas I could also go and buy a chair that's going to cost me, you know, thousands of pounds because it's been hand-tooled. Or I try and make it myself, and it's yes. going to take a lot longer than that two hours and much yeah. more materials. And, exactly. And, and, and may not carry my weight. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, you know, craft can, craft can only exist in places where there is a standardised, affordable alternative. Otherwise, it's not craft, it's just the way things are. And, and so it's a conscious decision on a consumer's part to spend more for something that is... Which they perceive as being better than the than the standardised version. The standardised version of anything will do its job. Um, the chair won't break when you sit down on it. The beer will be refreshing. It will get you drunk eventually. Um, and and you're paying for something that you think is better than that. Uh, but there's only so many people can do that. And because beer has always been this kind of democratic, approachable beverage, there is this. You get see this constant conversations. Um, so, you know, you can buy, a, if you get a really special kind of barrel-aged uh, you know, imperial stout that's been sitting in Cabernet Sauvignon barrels for a year, uh, and the bar is selling it for uh, £3.50 for a third of a pint glass, you're always going to get the guy who walks in and goes, that's 10 quid a pint. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not buying that. It's like, well, number one, you would never drink it by the pint. <laughs> uh, number two... Uh, it, 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 the, the pint is just an abstract concept in this thing. Number three, a third of a pint is just a little bit bigger than a one seven five mil glass of wine. Uh, this is the same strength of wa- as wine. It's a similar character to wine. F- try finding me a glass of wine uh, this size and this strength for three pound fifty anywhere in any pub in, in the UK. You're not going to find it. It's a bargain. It's not a rip off. And, and so that's yeah. all. You know, all our, our concept of value uh, and how how relative that is. You get people who say that beer should not be allowed to be sold above certain pints, and it's that whole thing of like, I don't like it, therefore it shouldn't exist. And that's an agile problem that I think is part of human nature. But my, I, I, I could literally talk uh, with you for hours and I would much rather doing it over a beer. And I hope you've noticed Indeed. that even though it's quarter past seven in the evening, I resisted the temptation to have a beer <laughs> while you were having a cup of tea because that's yes, just not fair. That's very kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about your recent book, Clubland. It came out last year but yeah. it's an audio book uh, with your dulcet tones i saw Indeed. photos of you on social media in, in in the booth but then it's also been on radio four yeah so they do this program called book of the week uh so monday to friday every week quarter to 10 in the morning and half past 12 at night uh somebody reads out a 15 minute extract from a book so you get five of those uh and so a production company cho very kindly chose clubland uh and then i got to read it myself so that was just 
brilliant. I was on the radio five times a week in the uh, in early January. Talk to me about Clubland because it's one of your books that I haven't yet got. Um, because again, I, my my question was: Is there a parallel that I will relate to in, in in Australia? So tell us a little bit about what the background of Clubland is in the UK. It's the history of the working men's club movement, uh, and you know there are clubs everywhere. Clubs go back to ancient Greece. There, you know, uh, groups of like-minded people who gather to socialise. Uh, it's as simple as that. So there's a parallel wherever you look. Um, what was specifically interesting about working men's clubs is that they borrowed this idea of a club from the gentlemen's clubs in central London. Uh, and it was philanthropists saying, this is what working men need. They need a place to socialise uh, and relax after a hard day's toil. There was a lot of background about how it was around the time when men were getting the vote, working class men were getting the vote for the first time. So there was this very strong movement that they needed to be educated. They needed to be refined and improved uh, so that they voted for the right people and didn't, didn't get any silly ideas about voting for socialists or, or, or fascists or whatever. Um, and it, and they were originally kind of, the idea was that they were without beer. Um, but then the working men managed to take over the clubs that were being run on their behalf. And the first thing they did was get beer in. And so for most of the 20th century, working men's clubs were an alternative to the pub. Uh, and because they were owned by the members, there was no profit motive, so they could sell beer cheaper than than pubs could. Okay. Uh, but on top of that, you know, any investment got put back into the club uh, rather than being given as profit to shareholders. And so they would build games rooms, and then they would build concert halls. And and then with the concert halls, they would go, well, well, Joe's a carpenter, you're a painter. We could we could put a play on you. You can you guys can do the scenery, and and you can read quite well, so you could act. And so they became places of entertainment as well as as well as drinking. Uh, and um, they would have newspaper rooms as well uh, with all the day's papers in. And by the late twentieth century, they were basically the the crucible for most of Britain's uh, light entertainment. So, you know, when I was a kid through to, you know, from the sixties through to about the nineties, if you saw a comedian, a TV presenter, a game show host, uh, a singer, a band, chances are they'd come up through the working men's club circuit, especially in the North of England where, where I grew up. And so the book is kind of a history of that movement. Cause it just hasn't been written about at all. Working class history tends to be ignored wherever you go. Um, the club men didn't keep great records. So there wasn't much of a recording thing going on, uh, within the clubs. Um, but it's also very personal to me. Um, I, I grew up in that world. I was the first generation that didn't get my club membership card for my 18th birthday. Uh, and I didn't want one and it never occurred to me to have one. And so part of the book is about the decline of the clubs and why, why did I not want to go? Have have they declined? Was that what spurned, yeah. spawned the, uh, the, the the book? Yeah, and um, yeah, there's still about fifteen hundred left, uh, but the average membership of them is in the seventies, uh, and they're struggling to attract new members, and they they need to. I mean, they they had issues with they had issues with uh, with sexism. Women didn't get equal rights in clubs until two thousand and seven. Uh, there were issues in the seventies with racism, and there was this general sense that they were just behind the times. On top of that, they were strongest in the big industrial areas. So when all the heavy industry in Britain uh, closed in the 80s, you got this dispersal. Working class communities are now very different. It used to be very homogenous, and and now everyone's doing a different job in a different place at a different time. Um, And so there has been this big decline. But my argument in the book is that although they had lots of problems, there's still a really important role for them to play 
in in communities, just as these hubs, these centres. They're quite big buildings. They had lots of rooms. You know, there's nowhere else. Libraries are closing, youth clubs are closing, community centres are closing. And then there are these big spaces where most of it's locked and shut in darkness for the week, apart from Friday night when these old guys go in for a pint. Do you see a nostalgia bringing them back? Or do you see, because you obviously don't remember why you didn't join or what it was. Does, will your nostalgia for it now, you know, as we yeah. reach that sort of uh, middle age, see you seek them out? Do yeah, a little there bit. Will be a resurgence? A little bit, but more than that, there's this thing that's happening to a lot of people I've spoken to, and you've got to be in the right place for this to happen, and I'm lucky about where I live. Um, we've got one down the road from us, uh, which turns out to be a really historically significant club. I didn't know that until I started researching the book. Um, and I was looking for a venue for my wife's 50th birthday. And so we hired their concert room uh, for Liz's birthday party. And we went in and everyone's like, look at this place. This is incredible. It's like this concert room hasn't changed since the 1970s. It's, it's, used, it's actually now used quite a lot for film shoots uh, for people. Who, so so the, the René Zellweger pick of uh, Judy Garland, they shot all their concert footage in, in the mild May because it, right. it still looks like that wow, kind okay. of venue, you know. And and there are a few. The Malmo's not the only one. There are these venues around the country where people will go for a for a party or something like that. And you get in there and you go, "This is incredible! This is incredible!" And and how do I get involved? How can I how can I take part in this? And they'll commit to that. Well, you know, it's all right now, but normally it's just, it's not normally like this, you know. And and so a few younger people are getting on these committees and revitalising them. So the Mild May now has, apart from being used as a film shoot, and it gets a lot of income from that, every every time we just had uh, the director, Steve McQueen, shooting a film in there, uh, and uh, you know, every time they get the income from uh, a film shoot, they'll repair a bit of the roof, or they'll build some dressing rooms, or they'll they'll empty these old toilets behind stage, backstage, that have been, <laughs> no one's gone in for 40 years. And so the club's <laughs> gradually regenerating. And there's a few around London, Leeds, uh, Manchester, that are having similar things. And a new generation's finding them, repurposing them. You know, having, having kind of swing jazz nights. Uh, as, uh, the thing about the Mild May Club now is that there's all these different rooms. There's nine full-size snooker tables downstairs just off the main bar. So people will go in just to play snooker. There'll be all the old ladies playing bingo, literally being kind of transported in from rest homes, retirement homes, and going up the stairlift to get to the bingo. It's their only time out of the rest home all week. And then in a room just downstairs from them, there'll be some kind of uh, avant-garde jazz concert going on. <laughs> and so in this building, you've just got all these different things happening at the same time. And there's a real... They, they deserve saving. Sold. If if, 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 if if that was the elevator pitch, I'm uh, I'm going to buy it now. This a very serious question in this day and age. For for some of the books that you've written, again, some of the foundational modern craft beer books, whether it's IPA, um, uh, Hops and Glory, um, and uh, I, I keep three sheets to win and Man Walks to the Pub. As I showed you before, they're on my uh, bookshelf. But do you ever get royalties from those? Like, is there a legacy? For royalty, man walks into a pub. I get royalties from. I get a few okay. a few hundred pounds a year from that, which is nice. Uh, most Not a of lot, but it's nice. Yeah, <laughs> but most most of the other ones haven't earned out their advance yet, and they probably won't. Uh, so uh, yeah, I still technically owe money. I mean, in in a way that you know, you never you never call to pay it back, but. 
Yep. They give you an advance based on es- estimated sales, and it, the standard in the industry is you never expect to recoup that advance. So these days, uh, w- what's the most profitable way that the writer gets the larger share? Like, is it buying an audio book? Is it buying it from Amazon? Is there a uh, you know a online you know an online retailer that is not one of the mega ones? There is in the UK. Uh, there's a couple of places. Like, there's a site called Bookshop.org, where which works exactly the same as Amazon, except the physical copy is coming from a local independent bookshop rather than a massive warehouse. Um, so I don't know if that exists in Australia or anything similar, uh, but that's a really nice idea. So and at least the post a good retail doesn't take that long. It's a small world these days. So yeah. uh, if they if they do ship overseas, yeah. So that's uh, Bookshop.org. Um, but the the way I, there's kind of having to swallow some pride about this, but the way any author gets the most money is by selling physical copies themselves. So, okay. so the retailer normally gets a fifty percent margin, uh, and if you buy copies and you lug a suitcase to an event like I do, then you're getting that fifty percent of the margin. Uh, and in these in these cashless days, there was something wonderful about going to a going to an event with a suitcase full of books, selling them for cash, and coming out with an, <laughs> an envelope full of readies, you know? It's just fantastic. Like, what am I going to do now? This is brilliant. <laughs> and not having to lug that heavy suitcase yes. home. The light suitcase, swinging it through the air as you go down the street with your money <laughs> in your pocket, going, I'm going to go for an Indian meal. Well, I'm not sure when I'm going to get the chance to uh, buy a physical copy from you and lighten your suitcase uh, in person. But uh, in the meantime, I will buy a, uh, a copy. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to buy both because I want to have the audio book and hear your dulcet tones uh, <laughs> talking me to sleep at, at night as exactly. I listen to uh, men's clubs. But uh, Pete Brown, it's always a pleasure um, and always a fascinating conversation. And it's uh, it, it, we never have enough time. So hopefully we will get to have the next one pint in hand. Yeah, it's great to be in the same country whichever one that is thanks Pete all right and that was Pete Brown if you like this conversation and would like to make sure that we can keep having them you can help us out if you're a business that wants to reach professional brewers and brewery owners we think we're the most targeted way to do that we have the conversations that the industry listens to and they can listen to your message as well shoot through an email to sam at brewsnews.com.au to find out how you can advertise If you're a listener and would like to kick in a few dollars, you can sponsor the show. You know the deal, for as little as a cup of coffee a month or half a schooner, you can give us a few bucks. You'll find a link on how to do that in the show notes. You can also review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting service, or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. Don't forget, we'll be back this Friday with Brews News Week, diving deeply into the news of the week.